Hello, and welcome to Careers by Design, the interviews. I'm Sharon belden Castingway, director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. As some of you sports fans may know, we are enjoying the start of basketball season, and in honor of that event, I'd like to welcome Michelle Roberts, an attorney and the executive director of the National Basketball Players Association, the Union for NBA Players. She is the first woman to hold the position, and in fact, the first female head of any professional sports union in North America. Michelle, welcome to Careers by Design. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Now, Michelle, in legal circles, you're known as a formidable trial attorney. In fact, Washingtonian Magazine once referred to you as the finest pure trial lawyer in Washington. Were there early indicators of that career path? Were you one of those people who just always knew you wanted to be a lawyer? Well, no, not always, but... Young enough, um, and it's, it's, it, I'll tell, tell it quickly, but my mother, and don't ask me why, um, enjoyed going to the local courthouse and, and watching trials and arraignments. And you know, I was sort of a, a, a nerd kid, and so when I realized she had this, this, this hobby, um, I followed her. And the two of us ended up, frankly, and, I, and again, I date myself at 11 years old, the first time I started doing this. Um, the two of us would spend time at the local court building watching court trials or arraignments. And by the time I was 13, I knew I was going to be a trial lawyer. Okay. I knew I was going to be a public defender, actually, but I knew I was going to be in courtroom. Interesting, interesting. So what was your path to Wesleyan? Why a liberal arts college? Well, I knew I was going to go to law school. And so, frankly... For some reason at the time, it didn't much matter. I didn't think it much mattered to me what undergraduate school I went to. But as it turned out, I had been, attended a high school, a boarding school. Um, I'm African-American. There were very few African-American kids there. Um, and there were two students ahead of me, uh, one year ahead of me, who were African-American that I befriended. And as they agonized about what colleges they would apply to in their junior year, just because of our, our, our friendship, I, I, I learned with them what the different opportunities were. Um, and as it turns out, Wesleyan was one of the schools that one of, the, one of those two students was really hot on. And so I got, I got to know about Wesleyan through her. Um, and she had, and I both learned at the same time that it was unique in both its academics, which were obviously superior, but it did allow, or at least professed to allow students to, to bloom. Um, one of the things that I found really difficult about my high school was how restrictive it was. And so I wanted to both obviously get into the best school I could, but I was encouraged by this notion that, that Wesleyan encouraged its students to be individual, um, and was supportive of, 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 of the kinds of creativity that, that the students it, it claimed to have mm -hmm. uh, wanted to explore. When she, this one student, Jackie, did get into Wesleyan, and I watched carefully how much she would or would not enjoy the school, and she loved it. And so at that point, it confirmed for me that if I got in, I was going to Wesleyan. And okay. it was the best decision I made academically in my life. So what sorts of things were you involved in on campus? When I was here, <laughs> I was an undergraduate, I was a, a government major. And, you know, again, I, I didn't do a lot of extracurricular things because the, just the per, my personality at the time was just so, I was a nerd. And so I, I frankly enjoyed, <laughs> enjoyed my classes. But 
what I particularly enjoyed were the very small classes, and the classes I took encouraged a lot of, I don't want to say arguing, because that's, that's, that's not really what I'm trying to say, but a discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I absolutely enjoyed and, and fundamentally understood that it was going to help me in the courtroom was the, the ability to be challenged and challenge other people's opinions about, about various topics. And so what I recall about Wesleyan is just the, the, the ability to engage in, in dialogue. I mean, the, we would have these fabulous court classes and the professor would essentially have to throw us out of the room because somebody else had to come in. And they would continue during lunch or dinner. And so I, what I recall about Wesleyan is just this ongoing conversation with, with a variety of people who didn't necessarily agree with you, but appreciated the the, the back and forth mm-hmm. uh, of sort of vetting vetting their opinions and and challenging yours, um, and I absolutely am confident that it did me uh, did me justice um, when I became a lawyer because you know, that's essentially what litigation is all about. Right, right. How did you go about deciding where to apply to law school? So you knew you were on that path. Did right. you ever waver from that path? Were you set on that not, path? Not for one second. Okay. Well, I, I I enjoyed the smallness of Wesleyan, mm-hmm. but I remember thinking at the time that it might be useful to go into a larger university setting. Mm-hmm. And so I began to look at big schools, frankly. Um, and I also decided I wanted to be on the on the West Coast. In other words, as much as I enjoyed Wesleyan, I wanted I thought it was probably a good idea to flip it. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to go to a large school, and I wanted to go on the East Coast, and I didn't want to go to Stanford. Okay. <laughs> because... <laughs> I knew a couple of people who were at Stanford who claimed that they were not enjoying the experience. And so if, if friends told me they weren't enjoying it, that was good enough for me. So I went to the University of California at Berkeley, mm-hmm. which seemed to me to be the logical alternative to Stanford if I wasn't going to go that route. Right. Okay. Okay. And tell me about your experience in law school. Was it what you expected? Was it everything you hoped it would be? Was it dramatically different? Yeah. <laughs> Given my background, there was no way I could have accurately predicted what law school was like. I was the first person in my family, second person in my family, to get a college degree. Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't know any lawyers. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anyone who had gone through law school. I didn't. I, I had no idea. All I knew was that I needed to graduate from law school so I could take the bar so I could start practicing right, law. Right, right. Um, and so I was completely taken aback by by the experience initially. Um, I'd gone from Wesleyan, where my classes at least were no more than 15 students, to University of California at Berkeley, where all of our classes were hundreds of students. Mm-hmm. And you know, just the, in, the, 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 the atmospheric difference was, was really difficult for me to adjust to. But you know, you know what you have to do, so you do it. It, it, was, it was not fun. Wesleyan was fun. I learned mm-hmm. a lot, but I had a good time. Um, I didn't view law school as, as fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, having having said that, I did understand that I needed to to, to master the the academics in order to a take the bar and b be able to practice law effectively. So you know, it was it was a chore. Wesleyan was a joy. Great. You know, sort of the difference. So tell me about how you put yourself on the track to become a public defender. You mentioned that that was your goal from the beginning. How did you yeah. manage that goal while you were in law school and made it happen after you graduated? Well, uh, you know, as much as I enjoyed watching trials as a kid, um, the reality 
of what I was seeing made it clear ultimately that I was going to be a public defender for the following reasons. I grew up in the projects and, um, in the South Bronx, so that tells you we didn't have any money. Um, and what startled me, and it's, it's, it's a memory which, despite the fact that I'm an old lady now, stays with me. Um, I have two older brothers, and you know, they, of course, had friends, and I knew their friends, and there was one kid in particular who was kind of nice to us. I mean, I have two younger sisters, one younger sister, rather. And, you know, while the, my brother and, and his friends typically ignored us, it was one guy who just, he was very nice to us. And I remember thinking of all my brother's friends, I really liked him a lot. Well, one day, my mom and I were watching arraignments um, in, 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 in court. And New York has, has weekend arraignments. If you're arrested, and that's the hearing where, where you see a judge and bond is set. And this friend of my brother's ended up, probably 17 or 18 at the time, ended up being brought in by the, by the marshal in handcuffs. And I was absolutely horrified to see the, you know, this, this young man in custody. And I, even, even though I clearly didn't know anything about the law and, 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 and had no right to, to criticize anyone's performance, something told me that the lawyer who was representing this guy uh, and my friend ultimately did not make bond, but even watching the, the performance of the lawyer, something suggested to me that he was not doing a good job. And when I made the comment to my mom, you know, why did he get that lawyer? My mom explained to me that, well, you know, we don't have, he didn't have any money, and that's the, that's court-appointed lawyer, and right. poor people kind of get what they... That very moment I said, I'm going to be a public defender. Um, and so, so despite the fact that I actually did very well in law school and was, was being actively encouraged to go to a law firm, there was no question in my mind from the minute I was I decided to, to do it that I was going to vacillate from that, and I didn't. Um, and I ended up immediately after law school practicing as a public defender in Washington, D.C. Now, you're on record as saying that people underestimated you oh, sure. when you first started litigating cases. Mm -hmm. Could you speak a bit about that? Well, you know, I started litigating cases in 1980. And while you know, I know women are right, and I know African Americans are right when they suggest today that there are barriers of entry into into the profession, um, you ain't seen nothing like <laughs> it was in 1980 right. um, when I was practicing. There were very few people of color um, who were in my office, and there were very few women who were actually trying cases. And so, you know, most most of my opponents were white men. Um, and, you know, God bless them, they had assumptions about my competence. Um, affirmative action was still very much um, dis <laughs> viewed in disfavor. So mm -hmm. I, I knew people viewed me as someone that likely was an affirmative action kid. And they assumed that I, therefore, was not much of a challenge. Um, I went from being insulted by that by, by, frankly, being amused by that. And, sure, I mean, th there were people who just on based on my appearance, to assume that they could and would have their way with me in a courtroom, um, they were wrong. Within eight years of the law school graduation, you were leading the trial division of the Public Defender's Office in D.C. Mm -hmm. uh, to the layperson, and that's me. That seems fast. Is that fast? <laughs> what is the standard shelf life and promotion path for a public defender? <laughs> it was. It was. It was kind of fast. I mean, I was. I was very competitive, and 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 wanted very much to learn quickly and and be 
involved in more serious cases because I really did view what I was doing as a bit of a mission. And so within three years, I was trying serious felony cases on my own. I mean, I, I did a lot of second chairing with, with more experienced lawyers and, and, and sort of accelerated my, my, my advancement. So it was, it, 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 it was a bit of a, 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 a short trajectory. Mm -hmm. um, but it didn't seem like that at the time. I mean, it, it, okay. it was some very, I mean, I had hundreds and hundreds of clients and it was a lot of hard work and Eight years to me today seemed like not a walk in the park, but at that time I remember thinking I couldn't remember that I, when I hadn't been doing that work. Mm -hmm. it, it was just so overwhelming. Um, though, despite how overwhelming it was, it was the, the best work I'd ever done for anything for anybody in my life. Is there a particular case that sticks out to you as being particularly meaningful or, or kind of indicative of that time period? A lot, a, a lot do. Um, the, the one that, that really scared me, and it, it reminded me of, of how important it is to have good, good court-appointed lawyers and public defenders, I was, was a, a, appointed to represent this young man in a, in a fairly infamous case at the time. I mean, it was a horrible homicide. The woman was, was brutally murdered by what the authorities described as a gang of young men. And it was, it, it was just the, the most horrific homicide that I'd ever been, 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 been made aware of. And I, another lawyer in my office had been appointed to represent this one kid who had been arrested, and, and he ultimately left the office to take a, a job in private practice, and I was appointed the case. And I remember, and it was unlike me, but I remember being, didn't, I didn't want it. Um, I presumed this kid was guilty, and you know, for the first couple of days, you know, tried very hard to get my supervisor to let me out of the case because I, 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 just had no regard for this this kid's prospects, and I was not allowed to get out of the case. Um, and so over, and so I held my breath and dug in, and within probably two or three months of of, of working the case up, I realized this kid was innocent, and I knew immediately that had I not. You know, nine out of ten lawyers who had that sense of this kid would have cut corners, not done, not performed, mm -hmm. um, and he would have ultimately been convicted. He was acquitted, and the sense of relief that I that I felt, um, I mean, I can remember. I, I'm feeling it again now because I remember think I was so guilty that I'd spent so many months assuming that this guy was 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 guilty and then only because we really pushed the investigation did I discover that he was not um, and then my 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 my, my shame um, made me work harder and ultimately made me never <laughs> find myself in that position again and that there are dozens of cases that, that I had but that was the one that I could have blown and that kid would still be in prison had I not just sort of dug down and, and done my job So tell me what ultimately led you to move into the private sector. It was really hard being a public defender. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the cases I was I was um, receiving were much more serious. I mean, the the the, the stakes were getting they were always high. I never had a misdemeanor anymore. I didn't have anybody that was if I lost was not going to spend the rest of his life in prison. And it was I mean, there's, I have friends who have done it for twenty years. I couldn't do it anymore because every single even the wins, and I was winning more than I was losing, but even the, even the wins, um, I, I would be so relieved 
that it occurred to me I was probably killing myself. I was just too too connected, um, and so I, I I knew I needed to do something else. So I left to do I left to go to private practice because there wasn't much more to do. I continued to represent people in serious cases, but you know I I ended up being able to mix in some civil litigation so I could <laughs> practice with, without feeling overwhelmed. I mean when you're representing a client in connection with money. You know, to him or, or that company, it's important. But frankly, it's only money mm-hmm. when you're representing someone whose liberty is at stake. Um, for me, at least, it is emotionally overwhelming. It can be emotionally overwhelming. Sure. Um, so it, it was. I was, perf- I was being perfectly selfish. I just needed to have less stress in my life, and that's why I did. How did you go about finding a firm? that was going to work with you in terms of your, you know, your personal values, the types of cases you want to work on. How did you go about that vetting process? Well, what I did when I initially left, I worked for in a small firm with some other pu- former public defenders okay. who had a, a mix of civil and, civil and criminal. So that was an easy transition. I ultimately left that firm because I wanted to have my own practice. Um, and so I did that for about 12 years, and that was, that was great fun as well. Um, but... At some point, I really hated the business of, of operating a law firm, mm. and so I decided to go to big law after about yeah about eleven years. Okay, and how did you find that experience? Was that just dramatically different from what you'd experienced? Or? <laughs> it, it, it it was, um, especially because I, I transitioned from my own firm to working with big law, and you know, big law, as you, as you may or may not know, is 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 doesn't necessarily encourage. Uh, independence and, and, and creativity. It, varies. It, was, it's a, it was a rigid environment, and I'm, that much I hated. You know, but, but having to keep track of your billable hours, I mean, that was driving me bananas. But mm-hmm. they ultimately, both I went to Aiken Gump and then ultimately Skadden, both the firms, because I, I was not coming in as a kid, I came in as a partner. Right. And so both those firms ultimately understood that, that why they wanted me. I mean, they wanted me because I was a trial lawyer, and they, and they needed someone with my, with my skill set and tolerated my independence um, in ways that they probably would not have had I been someone else. Um, but, but it was, it was not, I, I understood immediately that I would never have been able to go to a law firm as an associate because mm. you know, the, 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 it's, it's not even as, as fun as being in the military, I think, when you're an associate. Your daytime, your nighttime is completely dictated by others. And that's just not me. So I would not have been able to survive that environment, I think. Right. So as you mentioned, you enjoyed partnership at Skadden. It's one of the most renowned law firms in the world. Yes, um, why leave to take on the NBA? <laughs> and I, I will tell you that I really did enjoy Skadden. I mean, I, I was at a point in my life professionally where I was working at what I believe to be the best law firm on the planet. Um, I was in the D.C. office, and the other litigators that I was working with were a t- terrific team of lawyers. I had great clients. Um, I was making good money, um, and I was not looking for another job. But I've always been a basketball fan, and I've always followed the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I literally, just in looking at the trade papers at some point, learned that the chap that had been the executive director of the National Basketball Players Association, had been fired. And I remember saying, wow, that's a cool job, but that'll take 12 seconds to, to refill that. 
And then I went, sort of went back to my life, um, and maybe five or six months later, I ran across some story that suggested that they still hadn't filled the position. And I was shocked. I mm -hmm. thought, my God, they must have people breaking down, banging down right. the doors. So that, that got my curiosity, and so I just made some inquiries and discovered that no, that they, they were still in the hiring process. Um, and, and I remember, because I contacted the, the headhunter, they hired a firm to, to try to find some uh, appropriate applicants, and when I contacted them, the guy that I spoke with said, are you interested? And I said, maybe. And he said, well, you know, let, me, let me send you our application, and, and, and we need some information about you. And he, and he sent it, and I was actually preparing for a trial. Okay. And so I sort of put it aside for a couple of days, and he contacted me. By then, he had, I guess he'd gone ahead and done some Googling of me, contacted me and asked me if I was really going to submit mm -hmm. the, the, my resume. And I said, well, look, I'm a little busy right now. He says, well, you know, we, I, we, we, I would encourage you to put your name in. And I remember thinking, oh, he wants to check a box and say that, that a woman, right? <laughs> so at, just, just because the world is odd, and um, my case settled. Oh, okay. And it was a case that I expected to be in trial for about four months. And so I had time on my hands. Mm -hmm. And so I went ahead and submitted the resume. Um, and just got to work doing my homework. And the more I learned about the union and the issues that led to the termination of my predecessor, the more I both, A, believed I could do it, and then finally believed nobody could do it better than me. And so I applied. Well, as I understand, at least from the press coverage of this, you did, in fact, have a lot of, co of competition I did. Uh, for this it position. Turns out, it turns out I did. Turns out you did. <laughs> um, in your mind, from your viewpoint, there's been mm -hmm. some commentary on this, mm -hmm. but from your viewpoint, why did they choose you? Because the players chose you. They did. You know, once, once I, again, began to explore what the job entailed, I mean, it, it, it almost sounded like, I was made to do that job for several reasons. One, and it does involve a, you know, a, a, a representation of, of people who are just fabulous human beings, right? Mm -hmm. And so to, I can't think of a better quote-unquote client, and I use that term loosely because, frankly, they're not clients. They're clients and that I work for them, but then they're, they're my bosses as, as well, so I'm, they are my employer. But... I mean, I've had great clients as a lawyer all my life. These are men whose predecessors I've worshipped for years and years. So the notion of working with them um, was, was wonderful. But I, it also is the case that, that professionally I've always understood that you really do work for your client. And that was something that my predecessor, I think, forgot. Um, and so these, were, these men were looking for someone that would understand that their interests come first and no one else's. And that's something that I understood from years of practice as, 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 as a de public defender mm -hmm. and even as a, in private practice. So I knew I, I, I had that. Um, I'm also pretty, a pretty skilled lawyer, and you know, a lot of what my job entails now is, frankly, understanding, investigating, handling different stakeholders, uh, and being able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe orally. Um, and it's really litigation without a jury, and so mm -hmm. I think that I, I think I knew I had the skill sets that were that were um, necessary to do the job well. Um, I think that they ultimately chose me because they did agree that okay, she can she has the the chops to do it. 
but I, I'm confident because I'm, I, I work on it every day, and, and they, they, are, they, 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 they thank me for it every day. I continue to instill in, in our, my staff, and certainly it's my mantra, that it's players first. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what they were hungry for. You know, I, I'm I'm a fan of the game, but I understand that I'm not I'm not being paid to be a fan. I'm, I'm being paid to promote interest. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, I've only I only met, I think I met three of the competitors because we had to present. I think during the course of this thing, I met three of the presenters of, the, of my competitors, but in each of them, I saw an inferior candidate, and so I, to me, it was a no-brainer. Okay. Thankfully, the guys thought so too. What do you feel have been your most important accomplishments in the role so far, and what still lies ahead? And the answer to both questions is the same. Um, the reputation of the union was not a good one, um, both internally and externally, and, I, and, the, and it's the former that I found most, most important. While there certainly was a cadre of players who wanted to re reclaim the union and, 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 and make it great, or return it to greatness, I hate, hate that I sound a little bit like, like, like the Donald, um, most of the members viewed the union in, as something that was useless, that, that, that it doesn't matter who runs it, they don't care about us, you know, just, just make sure that I get my group licensing check. And then externally, there was a disrespect for the union. Uh, people didn't take it seriously. They, they viewed the, the staff as being relatively incompetent. Um, so we had to essentially engage in, it's interesting, a rebranding of, mm -hmm. of the union and, and internally get the guys to believe in it again. And so with, with a great staff, um, I now have gone from you know, weeks of hearing nothing from any player to on a daily basis, getting a text, a phone call, an email from some from, from players, and my staff the same thing, because they now view the union as actually a resource and mm. their resource. Okay. Externally, um, you know, I have agents, and I've got I've got the league, um, and I've got fr frankly fans who now have gone from thinking that the union is a joke to appreciating that we deliver for the players. Mm. Um, so we've done, you know, one of, the, one of the signature, and I don't take personal credit for any of this, and I do believe that it's, it's been both the team and the executive committee that I'm working with. You know, we now have retired players who are proud of us because the players have agreed to invest millions into a free health program. Mm. We have a new building. We were in Harlem, and there's nothing wrong with Harlem. I lived there. Um, but geographically, it was located in a, in, a, in a place where the players didn't didn't visit. We now have we moved to Midtown, but more importantly, we've turned it into a players' campus. And so our offices include, of course, the administrative staff, but we have a basketball court, uh -huh. we have a full gym, we have physical therapy. So my players are now coming into their facility. I see. And they're doing what they do best, play basketball. And they also, because many of them have their own businesses or business relationships, we have this, a, a portion of, this, of the space where they can conduct business meetings. Mm -hmm. And so now, again, when, I was in, when we were in Harlem, maybe half a, maybe half a dozen players came by in the two, two years that, that we were there. We've been at this new space since July. And there's a player, at least one player, in the facility every day. And so they now have a home that they're proud right. of, um, and they can actually find some value in. 
Um, and that's all about rebranding it so that again, right. internally they, they, they're proud of their union and externally people are saying, wow, the MBPA is on the move. I'm really proud of that. That's great. What would you say is the overarching theme or, or common denominator in your career path leading up to now? It's, it's sort of what, um, I mean, given my background, um, I was supposed to probably, if I was going to be sort of typical, I, I was probably going to have a high school diploma, which was which is fine. Um, I might have had some babies by now, my, not by now, <laughs> maybe a grandmother by now. But and the, my, the, the point is, my path was not supposed to be anything but miserable. I, I, my, I grew up with five lovely brothers and sisters, but my mom was abandoned by our father, so she had to raise us alone on welfare um, in the projects. And you know, give, given that biography, one would have an expectation about where my, my life would end up. Um, what I what I got from my mother was this notion of no limits, um, and it's essentially been what I've said about myself and to myself many times I've had to convince myself should be my my professional and personal mantra no limits. One of the reasons, frankly, and I'll get back to Wesleyan is is Wesleyan helped to nurture that in me. Um, and so I've never let the fact that I'm, I'm an African-American or the fact that I'm a woman or the fact that I was poor or the, any fact prevent me from, from moving in a direction that I thought would, be, would make me happy, um, would be a value. Um, and th that I had my current job um, when if I told more friends I was applying for, I would have said, are you crazy? You've not been in that world. You're a girl. You're black. Um, I've never, ever stopped believing that there are no limits. And so it's, I've done well with that mantra professionally, and I've done well with that mantra personally, and, and it's what I encourage my, my nieces and any young person that asks me, you know, what, what, what do I do um, to sort of be successful? And it is to stop, your, stop yourself. Forget everybody else. You can take care of them. Stop yourself from stopping you. Um, always say no limits. Michelle Roberts, class of 77, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, thank you. It's been great. This has been Careers by Design, the interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway, music by Andrew Santanello.